Turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2 as we celebrate the fourth Sunday of Advent. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cornelius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea in Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed them in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his own favor rests. You guys have heard me say before that um, the gospel writer Luke is a medical doctor by profession. So he's very detailed in his uh, writing style. And in this passage that we looked at, by the, way, I, by the way, I could preach on this text like every Christmas. Maybe I'm thinking I should. Luke takes the time to tell us about Emperor Caesar Augustus, about empires and about taxes and bloodthirsty wars. And we look at that and kind of shrug our shoulders because... 2010 was it when we took a census we kind of filled out a form and just sent it in back in the first century when they took a census riots broke out people were killed why does luke tell us about empires and taxes and census and bloodthirsty wars um if you're here, sitting here today going you know peter i normally expect to come on christmas and hear a warm fuzzy sermon Something that lifts up my spirit. Here's the problem. When you remove from the picture emperors and empires and wars and taxes and riots, you miss the point of Christmas. You totally miss the point of Christmas. Because the whole point of Christmas that Luke is trying to get you and I to see is that we don't have a God. And this is huge theological shift for some of us. We don't have a God whose entire goal is to whisk us away for some sort of an escape from a real world of politics and economics and wars and taxes. But we worship and serve a God who enters in, who comes in to a real world, a tangible real world of Wars and taxes and economics and empires and dictators and rulers. We have a God who comes to bring salvation. Salvation 
with skin on it. Salvation, that's not just for you and me and our souls. Let me put it this way. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus Christ came to bring peace. But peace is not just an inner state of soul where we're reconciled with God. But the peace that Jesus Christ comes to bring is shalom. It's restoration, renewal for all of creation. And Luke is getting you and me to see, look deeper, look deeper, because what Jesus Christ came to do is not just reconcile sinners to God, which is amazing, phenomenal, but what Jesus Christ came to do is good news for those being persecuted and killed in Syria. It's good news for the hungry in Darfur. It's good news for even in our old city. For those who are going hungry, for those who are unemployed, for those who are struggling just to put food on the table, for the single mom in our church in the city who are wondering, does life get any harder than this? It's good news for all people. There's going to come a time in this sermon where reserved church. There's going to come a time in this sermon, if I do my job right, and you see the scripture and the Bible opens up, you're going to want to go, Hallelujah. Or praise the Lord, or amen, or something. And I want to encourage you, when that time comes, don't just sit there. Do something to go, I got it. Amen? All right. I am greatly indebted. Because I don't just make this stuff up. Um, to, the, to the context, and historical context, these two books, and if you're interested in renting them or borrowing them, you have to return them, though. Uh, the, the first is The First Christmas, and this is a book written, written by a guy named Marcus J. Borg and John Dominique Croissant. And the second book, God and Empire. The insights that I'm about to share with you, you need to understand about the historical context. Alan Frost, I see you here. Alan Frost, uh, is fond of saying to me, you know, I like what you do during Christmas when you bring the historical context. So he doesn't come for the rest of the year, but he's here today. Um, I'm going to put up a lot of slides, and Dax and I are trying to, you know, trying to coordinate here, and we're going to go pretty fast. So I need you guys to, to, to focus. The ancient Jews lived under one empire after another for 500 years. By the time Jesus is born, Caesar Augustus, the guy that Luke talks about, is ruling the empire as the emperor of Rome. And he's been ruling for about 25 years. And he rules in that world from Britain to India. Let me show you a map of the, of the, of the, of the conquest and the, and the breadth of his reach. Caesar Augustus, who's on the throne, has done something that no one else had done for 200 years before him. He unifies this expansive Roman empire. Now, how did he and the Romans rule the empire? Versus military. Military. Here's a quote by a guy named uh, Tacitus, a Chalcedonian chieftain. The Romans are the plunderers of the world. If the enemy is rich, they're rapacious. If poor, they lust for dominion. Not east nor west has sated them. They rob, they butcher, they plunder, and call it empire. And where they make desolation, they call it peace. In other words, the Romans are ruling the world through brute force and violence. When Jesus is born, Roman armies are marching through the empire. The region of Galilee, burning villages, enslaving the able-bodied and killing the infirm. At the time of Jesus' birth, Rome has 28 legions. And for those of you that are into like movies like 300, this will be interesting. 28 legions, each comprised of five to 6,000. They were called fighting engineers. Why? 
According to Josephus, a famous Jewish historian in his seminal work, Jewish War, each Roman soldier has two items for war and seven items for construction. Why? First, their job was conquest. Second job, though, was to build an infrastructure in which their conquest depended. So they would go to a town, level it, butcher it, plunder it, rape it. Then they would build ports. Then they would build roads. Now, this made travel easy. One was for commerce, which is the reason why, by the way, the Bible exploded because it was easily carried from one city to another. But the main reason was it made squashing revolts very easy. Let me introduce you to some of these enforcers. Germanicus. There he is. Next slide, please. Tacitus, historian, describes the military campaign of Germanicus. The aim was to punish, to avenge, and to terrify. For 50 miles around, he wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. Here's another dude. His name is Titus, another general. Josephus, describing this general in one of his military campaigns across the Rhine, says, They were accordingly beaten and subjected to torture of every description and then crucified opposite walls. Some 500 or more were captured every day. Titus hoped that the spectacle might induce the Judean to surrender for fear that continued resistance would involve them in a similar fate. The soldiers, out of rage and hatred, amused themselves, amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures, otherwise known as. And so great was their number that space could not be found for the crosses and not enough crosses for the bodies. We know from history that the Romans invented crucifixion for what they called demonstration effect. In other words, revolt and watch what happens. Do you think it meant something to the Christians in Galatia when Paul wrote this? Christ was publicly what? Exhibited before you. When they're reading this, they have mental imagery of valleys and lands of men and women. Crucified. Here's another general. Cassius. Next slide, please. He enslaved 30,000 people in and around Czechia, which was also called Magdala. Do you remember Jesus had a disciple named what? Mary the Magdalene. In other words, listen, the Bible is filled with disciples of Jesus who are from these regions and areas in which Roman soldiers methodically marched through and burned and pillaged and killed. General Varus in 4 A.D., a Jew named Judas led a revolt in the city of Sephoris, the capital of Galilee, which was only about three and a half miles away from Nazareth. Check this out. To squash the revolt, Varus sends three legions. That's 18,000 troops, 2,000 cavalry, and 1,500 infantry. They burned the entire town to the ground. He then proceeds to hunt down and crucify 2,000 men. Question, what do you think happened to small adjacent towns when Roman legions struck a city with the sword? What happened to Nazareth, three and a half miles away? That's an hour and a half walk. Varus does this during time when Jesus is born. Jesus grows up in Nazareth. The major event in his village's life was the day that the Romans came, the day that the Romans came, the day that the Romans came. Could not not have heard about the day the Romans came, the day that Romans came, the day that Romans came. Josephus, another quote, 
Speaking of Varu says, he put to the sword a thousand of the youth who had not already escaped, made prisoners of women and children, gave his soldiers license to plunder the property, and then set fire to the houses. The able body fled, the feeble perished, and everything left was consigned to the flames. This is what it means to live in first century Galilee. Are you getting a picture? Revolt. And when we're done with you, we're not going to have to come back for two generations. Historian Tacitus, to plunder, butcher, steal, these things, they misname empire. They make a desert and they call it peace. This is how the first century world is experiencing peace. Church, are you getting a picture of the first century Roman Empire? Yes? Does this, does this sound like Christmas was around a manger and a baby and you see why we, if we talk about the shepherds and don't talk about the emperors, we miss the point of Christmas. Okay. Secondly, how did the Roman Empire rule the world? Secondly, it was economic. Caesar doesn't just rule the empire through force and violence. That's how he expands the empire as well. And who administers the force and violence? The military. Here's the thing. How does Caesar control, maintain control of the military? He pays him. Where do you find money to pay the military? You tax the people. And how do you find out how many people you have in your empire so that you could tax the people? You take a? It's the money of the everyday people paying their taxes that enables Caesar to expand his empire. Some say in the region of Judea, people are getting taxed 80, taxed 80 to 90% of their entire income. Why? So that Caesar can make his empire bigger and bigger. And by the way, you don't like it? You revolt? This is what happens. Acts chapter 5 verse 37. Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. But he perished and all those who followed him were scattered. By the way, is the Bible coming alive to you a little bit? Yes? These random verses? Okay. So imagine yourself living in the good, as a good Jew in the land of Palestine. Remember, this is an agrarian society. So you're mostly farming. And so you've been told for generations, hey, your grandfather farmed on this land and it goes all the way back to the time when Joshua entered the promised land and gave the Israelites all a piece of the land. And you've been told, this is what you do. This is your inheritance. But you're getting taxed more and more by Caesar and you no longer can keep your land and you have to sell it. Imagine the guilt. For generations, 20 generations, your family is in the land, but you have to Sell it because you're getting taxed more and more. You're unable to keep the land. So what do you do? If you're unable to keep the land and farm it, what do you do? You have to look for work. You have to look for whatever that could pay you. For example, you become a carpenter. And you go to wherever the work is. Why does Luke mention the fact that Joseph, the father of Jesus, who is from Bethlehem, is now living in Nazareth. But he has to go back up to Bethlehem where his family land is to take the census. And by the way, what does Joseph do for a living? He is a He's going to wherever the work is. Are you getting a picture of the first century world? See, the thing is, we're not just spectators of history today, this morning, because when we really press in, the Christmas story is not just birthed out of rough, difficult economic times for them, but it also brings context to us. I'm just wondering here, does anybody know what it's like to lose your job? Anybody relate to what it's like to struggle putting food on the table? Does anybody know what it's like 
to struggle, to work, to struggle, to work, but feeling like you can't quite get out of the situation that you're in. Does anybody in this room today going through rough, difficult economic times and adding insult to injury, you're told, Caesar's doing this because he wants to bring peace. He's going to make your life better. And you're sitting there going, make my life better. My life isn't better. How did the Roman Empire rule the world? Lastly, was ideological or political? Let me show you something. Divine, son of God, God, God from God, redeemer, liberator, Lord, and savior of the world. Before Jesus was ever born, before Paul ever wrote a letter, before Christianity had entered the scene, these are the titles that were given to the Caesars. Let's meet them with them, shall we? You know this guy from history books. Um, Julius Caesar. Um, um, for some of you are going, haircut, why is that in there? You must have been born like in the 80s and 90s. It was this thing called Julius Caesar. Anyway, anyway. Um. Julius Caesar rules until 44 BC, but when he was betrayed by, do you remember, 60 senators, he's murdered on the Roman Senate floor. Oh, hell breaks loose, a civil war erupts, and it goes on for 20 years, and they are just devastating and ruining the Roman Empire and much of the Mediterranean world in this process. Then on September 2nd, 31 BC, it all ends in the Ionian Sea off Cape Octium in northern Greece by this man, Caesar Augustus. The adopted son of now deified Caesar. And Caesar Augustus, whose real name is Octavian, consolidates power. And he is given the name Caesar Augustus in Latin meaning one who is divine. Or Sebastus in Greek, which means one is to be worshipped. Then the next emperor is this guy, Tiberius, who rules during the time of Jesus' ministry. And you see his name in the Gospels. Then there's this guy, Caligula. And then there's this dude, Nero. Not a nice dude. Not a nice man. In Revelation, we're told about a beast who loses a battle in heaven, is cast down to earth where he rules the world. And we're told in Revelation 13, 18 that the number of the beast is 666. Did you know? And using ancient Jewish technique for encoding a name into a number called gematria, the number 666 decodes into the name Caesar Nero, who rules empire from 54 to 69 A.D. He's the first to persecute Christians. Peter and Paul are executed during Nero's reign. And there's this guy, Vespasian. Then there's this guy, Titus, who destroys the temple in Jerusalem in 60 AD. Then there's this guy, Domitian. Domitian comes and says, if you want to do any business in the Roman Empire, you have to first worship him as God. If you're some sort of business person, you want to do any business, what you have to do if you want to buy or sell anything, you have to go to the market where there was an altar set up before him, and you have to acknowledge that Domitian is God. Some people believe, historians, that in order to prove that you acknowledge Domitian as God, you receive a little mark on your arm or sometimes on your forehead. You know, mark on your arm or forehead, and you have to acknowledge Domitian as God so you can buy or sell something. The Jews begin to call him the beast. And because he came by boat and land, the Jews call him the beast of land and sea, who said you must take the mark, the mark of the beast, to buy and sell. That's Domitian. Well, let's come back to the Christmas story because we have to spend just a little bit of time on Caesar Augustus, who rules during the time of Jesus' birth. 
in the ancient city of Preen in modern-day Turkey, you see an inscription in the temple, and this inscription is about Caesar Augustus. It says, the good news about the birthday of a divine child who will save the world from destruction by establishing permanent peace. By 9 BC, people began calling Augustus the savior of the world for ending 100 years of social unrest and 20 years of civil war. The parliament declares him, check this out, God incarnate on earth. So Caesar Augustus is God in flesh on earth. Temples are built in his honor and prayers or sacrifices are being offered to the God Caesar Augustus. Poet Virgil says about Augustus, the one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited. So they believed and called Augustus God. The one is to come, the divine king of salvation. That people have been waiting to come to earth. So you can see why when John the Baptist's disciples go to Jesus and ask him, Matthew eleven three, 3, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect another? Virgil, again, writing about Caesar Augustus, says, He will annihilate the evil of the past and free the people from unceasing fear. He will establish a universal empire of peace and will lead in the golden age for the blessings of a renewed humanity. This is about Caesar Augustus. One of the propaganda slogans about Caesar during this time was, Salvation is to be found in none other than save Augustus. You want to be reconciled to the gods? You have to trust that Caesar is God. Come to earth to free you from fear and provide you with new life. Author Propertius says about Augustus, O Savior of the world, Augustus, now conquer at sea. The land is already yours. My bow battles for you. And Amira of Lycia on the coast of Turkey, where Paul spent some time according to Acts 27, is this inscription, Divine Augustus Caesar, Son of God, of land and sea, the benefactor and Savior of the world. This is a culture in which people are saying Caesar Augustus is not just Savior of Rome, but he's Savior of humanity who's brought peace and salvation to mankind. And he's being worshipped with feasts and hymns by those who have faith in him. So to profess allegiance, so to profess allegiance, so to profess allegiance to any other God was treason. And through the book of Acts, we see the Roman authorities arresting Paul Arresting the apostles. Why? What was their mantra? Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else. You think that was a political statement? Oh, yes. See, we read it. 2,000 years ago. Salvation is found in no other than Jesus. Saying salvation is found in none other than Jesus could get you arrested and executed. This is the context. Most of the populace was illiterate, so coins are the news outlets of the day. If you wanted to get out a message, you would mint a coin because coins would travel throughout the economy. And here's a picture of first century coin. Divi Phileas, son of God. And the picture is who? None other than Caesar. Are you getting a picture of what the Roman world is like? So what did it mean for them? What did it mean for the first century Christians? What did it mean for those who were receiving the Christmas message? They're living in a world in which Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the Savior of the world. Caesar is God. The first Christians are living in a time in which Roman soldiers would come to your village and go, is is Caesar Lord? And if he said, yes, he's Lord, then they would set up an altar. These are first century Jews. Set up an altar in which people would bow down to the God of Caesar. But if you said, no, Jesus is not Lord, you were either killed 
or enslaved. They're living in a time in which they're being told there's no other name than that of Caesar that you can be saved. So bow down and worship Caesar, the one who's going to make your life okay, but their life isn't. The Jews are God's people, so they believe that God was their God. So what kicked in, and I wonder if anybody could relate, what kicked in during this time in the first century is a profound sense of despair. Like, God, is this how life is always going to be? Is Caesar always going to be on the throne? Is Caesar always going to rule? He's going around telling people, peace has come, some peace. We're being taxed to death. The haves get more and more. The rich are getting richer and richer, and the poor are getting poorer and poorer. You could hardly eat. And so Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, pray this way. Give us our what? Day our daily. You can't afford to keep your land, so you're going into debt, deeper and deeper debt every day. And so Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors profound sense of despair like is this how the world is always going to be profound sense of despair like god why do you allow this to happen why do you allow evil injustice why do you allow caesar why do you allow the wicked to prosper while the righteous suffer why do you allow that not just a sense of despair but there's also a sense of doubt has anybody been there anybody been there this morning anybody there this morning saying god Why is the world the way it is, God? If you're good, then why do you allow evil and injustice and suffering to continue? God, if you're good, if you're sovereign, if you're loving, then why do you allow the wicked to seemingly prosper and the righteous suffer? God, if you're good, even bring it closer to home, why do you allow millions to suffer in this world to go hungry? God, why do you allow AIDS? Why do you allow famine? God, why am I still unemployed? God, why am I still struggling just to put food on the table. God, why? Where are you? Where are you? We're waiting. We're waiting, God. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And in the midst of this comes the revolutionary message of Christmas. Because when the angel appears in this first century context, what is the message of the angel to the shepherds? This. Today in the town of David, a what? Savior has been born to you, and he is what? Messiah, the Lord. That was the moment, by the way. Is this? Do you think they heard that and thought, hmm, silent? What do you think they responded by when they heard that? How do you think they responded when they heard that? When the message of the angels come to the people and they say, He is Christ the Lord, their hearts erupted like Mary. This is the message here. He will be great. My, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Holy Spirit comes upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One, He will be called the Son of God. Luke is saying, I know that there's this dude in Rome who claims to be God, but Mary, I got news. Caesar is going down. He's going down. Because 
the son of the most high God. A baby is being born. A baby is being born. A baby is being born. And he is Christ. Is this good news to anybody? If we really understood this, the angel is saying, Caesar is going down. The clock is ticking. Why? Check this out, everybody. A new king is on the scene. This baby will be a different kind of king, and he is going to rule over a different kind of kingdom. His kingdom is not about violence and injustice and oppression and accumulation of power. No, his kingdom will be about peace and justice and love and righteousness. This king that is to come has a special place in his heart for the poor, the weak, the marginalized, and those in bondage. His heart is bent towards the weak, the hurting, the lost, and those in debt. Luke 4, 146, Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know what Mary thinks of Jesus? You know what Mary thinks of Jesus? You know what Mary thinks of Caesar? You know what Mary thinks of Caesar, right? She's saying, ah, a new Caesar, who rules the Roman Empire with legions at his disposal. But I've seen what God can do. I've seen what God can do. This dude in Rome who claims to be God, and at the snap of a finger, people could live or die. Mary says, I have seen the king, my Lord. And I know what he's capable of. Is this good news? Church, is this good news? This hit you in the, how's it go? Between the eyes, two by four, forehead, something along those lines. If it hits you, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. What's amazing is this, in a small, in a small, in a small, Carlos, you can come on up, bro. In a small, in a small, marginalized corner of the Roman Empire among an oppressed group of people that the Roman Empire looks at and goes, a small group of people start following Mary's lead. And they start saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Are you hearing me? Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You see why it was good news? A great joy. Can you see why the Christmas story is such powerful news? It's about a God who shows up, you guys, in human history, not just to reconcile us in some spiritual sense to God, but shows up in human history. And God, during this time, is essentially saying to the world, enough, a new king is on the scene. He's not about bondage. He's about liberation. He's not about violence. And grab power at all costs. He's about justice and love and peace for all mankind. Luke 4.18. Jesus was saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The message of Christmas is Caesar is now ruling the world. But a different kingdom is coming. And his kingdom will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. Anybody take history in high school? Caesar's kingdom? Pile of rocks in a picture. Julius Caesar died. Caesar Augustus died. Tiberius died. Vespasian died. You get in the picture? 
And what was the motto of the early church? Our king, he what? He lives. Stay with me. He lives. He lives. He lives. And his kingdom is going to go on forever and ever and ever. Is this good news? I don't know why I do that when I get excited. I don't do that. I know why. Because I want somebody to grab me if I'm dead with this news. Because Christmas is news that the world that we live in is not the final world. That the, pre- that the future has invaded the present. And the kingdom of God that was ushered in by the death and resurrection of Jesus. God will one day come and finish the job. And establish in our messed up broken world a world of peace, justice, and love. There will be no more tears. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more evil. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more divorce. There will be no more sin. In our hearts and in the world. Church, that's the real Christmas story. Here we are 2,000 years later celebrating the kingdom of Jesus with over 2 billion people. The message of Christmas is simple. All the Caesars of the world will eventually die and fade away, but the kingdom of Jesus, ushered by King Jesus, will go on forever and ever and ever. What does this mean for you and for me? Three questions, and we're done. Here's the first one. Who is Lord? I was thinking about this. If it was illegal to worship Jesus in this country, would you be guilty of treason? Would I be guilty of treason? Because I bow my knees. The King of kings and to the Lord of lords. And I refuse to bow my knees to any Caesars of our world today. And if you're sitting here there going, Peter, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with it, man. I want to be free, my friend. There's no such thing as a truly free person. There's no such thing as an irreligious, non-worshipping person in this room today. You are living for something. You are giving your life for something. And whatever that something someone is, that is your Lord. No, you don't understand. I really don't worship anybody. I live for my own self. My friend, do you not realize that you have bowed your knees down at the altar and sacrifice of your own independence? Who is Lord? Followers of Jesus, I ask you this holiday season when the Caesars of the world that we bow our knees to every single day shout their allegiance, shout their demand for allegiance, do you and I today say, I choose to bow my knees to Jesus because he alone is my king, he alone is my Lord. Who is Lord? Second question, do we take care of each other? You see, Caesar threw these things called bread and circuses to keep the masses from rioting. Bread and circuses. Here's Caesar. He's going to give you some bread so that you don't riot and you remain calm. Well, the early disciples were gathered together in this kingdom community. Kingdom on earth community were gathered together. And what did they do? Do you remember in the book of Acts they were what? Break bread. Do you think that was a political statement? Oh, yes. They broke bread. 
And they said, listen, we're going to meet at Dave's house on Thursday. We're going to break bread. And before we eat anything, let's look around and go, is anybody in need? Is anybody in need? Who's hungry? Who needs clothes? Who needs shelter? Is anybody in this room in need? And they would, listen to this, take care of each other. They would take care of each other's needs so that in Acts 2.44 it says what? Nobody had any in need. Why? Because they shared everything they had in common. They would take care of this and they would invite the watching world to go, you want to see the rule and reign of God? You want to see what the world will look like when the king of kings comes? Here it is. We care for each other. We love each other. We tangibly meet each other's needs. And church, new community, family, are we doing that to each other? Can we invite the watching world to come and say, You want to see how we worship this King Jesus? Watch how we live. Watch how we live. Third question. Is anybody here this morning struggling with doubt, despair, and cynicism? The message of Christmas is Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. And if you're sitting there this morning struggling with a sense of doubt, struggling with a sense of fatalism, struggling with a sense of this is the way the world is going to be, and that's it, Christmas is an emphatic declaration from God. Listen carefully. An emphatic declaration from God that disease will not have the last word. Injustice will not have the last word. Evil will not have the last word. Dictators will not have the last word. Emperors and empires of the world will not have the last word. God will have the last word. God will have the last word. And if you ever doubt, read Luke 2 over and over and over again. Sitting there going, man, Peter, it's been really, really hard. I don't, I don't know if I can see Chicago changing. I don't know if I can see my family changing. I don't know if that person that I care for will ever come to know Jesus. Doubt, despair. May you remember on this day, Jesus Christ is 